Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, a Canadian JFK assassination researcher describes how he smuggled the Zapruder film into Canada in the early 1970s. I was just sitting there in the plane thinking, oh, please, let's go, let's take off and let me get out of here. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. That's over 350 episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get access to premium episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Wednesday. The Zapruder film is the most famous, most analyzed film footage in history. Abraham Zapruder unexpectedly captured the assassination of President Kennedy in a home movie while filming the presidential limousine and motorcade as it traveled through Dealey Plaza. The film is regarded as the most complete footage of the assassination. The footage was captured on an 8mm Bell & Howard Zoomatic Director Series model, top of the line, when it was purchased in 1962. Zapruder had planned to film the motorcade from his office window, but decided to choose a more optimal spot in Dealey Plaza where the motorcade would be passing. He chose to film on top of a four-foot concrete abutment which extends from a retaining wall that was part of the John Neely Bryan concrete pergola on the grassy knoll north of Elm Street in Daly Plaza. Zapruder's secretary, Marilyn Stitzman, offered to assist Zapruder as he suffered from vertigo and was apprehensive about standing on the abutment alone. While Stitzman stood behind Zapruder and held his coat to steady him, he began filming the presidential motorcade as it turned down Houston Street onto Elm Street in the front of the book depository. Zapruder's film captured 26.6 seconds of the traveling motorcade carrying President Kennedy on 486 frames of Kodak Kodachrome 2 safety film. Zapruder's film captured the fatal headshot that struck Kennedy as his limousine passed almost directly in front of Zapruder in Stitzman's position, 65 feet from the center of Elm Street. Zapruder would later recall that he immediately knew that President Kennedy's wound was fatal as he saw the president's head explode like a firecracker. Walking back to his office amid the confusion following the shots, Zapruder encountered the Dallas Morning News reporter Harry McCormick, who was standing near Zapruder and noticed he was filming the motorcade. McCormick was acquainted with Agent Forrest Sorrells of the Secret Service's Dallas office and offered to bring Sorrells to Zapruder's office. Zapruder agreed and returned to his office. McCormick later found Sorrells outside the sheriff's office at Maine and Houston, and together 
they walked to Zapruder's office. Zapruder agreed to give the film to Sorrells on the condition it would be used only for investigation of the assassination. The three then took the film to the television station WFAA to be developed. After it was realized that WFAA was unable to develop Zapruder's footage, the film was taken to Eastman Kodak's Dallas Processing Plant later that afternoon, where it was immediately developed. As the Kodachrome process requires different equipment for duplication than for simple development, Zapruder's film was not developed until around 6.30 p.m. The original developed film was then taken to Jameson Film Company, where three additional copies were exposed. These were returned to Kodak around 8 p.m. for processing. Zapruder kept the original plus one copy and gave the other two copies to Sorrells, who sent them to Secret Service headquarters in Washington. While at WFAA, Zapruder described on live television the assassination of President Kennedy. Later that evening, he was contacted at home by Richard Stoley, an editor at Life magazine. They arranged to meet the following morning to view the film. Following day, November the 24th, Life purchased all rights to the film for a total of $150,000. That's approximately one and a quarter million dollars today. The night after the assassination, Zapruder said he had had a nightmare in which he saw a booth in Times Square advertising, see the president's head explode. He determined that while he was willing to make money from the film, he didn't want the public to see the full horror of what he'd seen. Therefore, a condition of the sale to life was that frame 313, showing the fatal shot, would be withheld. Although he made a profit from selling the film, he asked that the amount he was paid not be publicly disclosed. He later donated $25,000 of the money he was paid to the widow of Officer J.D. Tippett, the Dallas police officer who was shot and killed supposedly by Lee Harvey Oswald some 45 minutes after the assassination of Kennedy. In 1975, Time, which owned Life magazine, sold the film back to the Zapruders for a dollar. In 1978, the Zapruders allowed the film to be stored at the National Archives and Records Administration, where it remains. In 1999, the Zapruders donated the copyright of the film to the Sixth Floor Museum at Daly Plaza. Here to discuss the Zapruder film and his role in smuggling the film into Canada in the early 1970s is JFK assassination researcher, media scientist, and archivist for the late Marshall McLuhan, Nelson Thal. Hey Nelson, welcome back. How are you? Oh, terrific, Richard. It's just great being back with you on air. We're just a few days away from the anniversary of the JFK assassination. Let's see, do some quick math. This would be 57 years since the assassination of the 35th president. And you have a very important connection to the JFK assassination and specifically the Zapruder film. You smuggled a copy of the Zapruder film into Canada. How did that happen? Basically, um, the way in which I um, was able to get it is um, uh, through Penn Jones. I had uh, met Penn Jones. Um, I had reached out to Penn around 1969-70, right after the Clay Shaw trial. I uh, heard of Penn Jones from May Brussels tapes. I used to get, uh, I was a Brussels sprout and got all the tapes from May Brussels. Found out about a Penn Jones and uh, wrote to him. 
he was the publisher of the Midlothian paper, and I had some connections in my to my own in the newspaper business, and I used a publisher to give me a letter of reference so that he would know that I wasn't just a kook because, of course, you know, Penn was always bombarded by different people. He had to be careful. And so I went down and spent a couple of weeks with him in, in, in Dallas, and um, he had uh, told me that Garrison was uh, looking for ways to get this this out. He had co- a copy. Penn had a copy. And he was looking for ways. And remember, the media, there was no internet. Uh, the media, of course, was highly controlled. It was illegal to have in your possession the this film. And I suggested that I would use best efforts to get it aired out of border stations in Canada if he could get me a copy. And um, he thought that Garrison would be interested in using that as a route if I could prove it to him. And basically, to make a long story short, I met with him and uh, he realized that I was a dedicated researcher and not a didn't have any connections to the intelligence industries or anything. So I was uh, bonafide. And so uh, through Penn, he, he, he arranged for me to get a copy. The thing took about two years. Okay, so let's just back up. Penn Jones, of course, as you mentioned, journalist, was one of the early critics of the Warren Commission's report on the assassination of JFK. This is something he wrote about in the Midlothian Mirror, this uh, newspaper I guess he bought back in the 1940s for something like $4,000. So you reached out to Penn Jones. Talk to me about why Garrison was making copies of the Zapruder film. In other words, he was using it as evidence, but he couldn't just, he couldn't walk away with the Zapruder film. Who owned it at that time? Okay, well, the film was bought by Time Life from Zapruder, and um, it was sealed away. The Warren Commission sealed it away out of the public's view in 1964. Then in 1969, when Jim Garrison subpoenaed the film from Time Life because he charged Clay Shaw and eventually Lewis Mortimer Bloomfield, but publicly it only came out that he charged Clay Shaw and uh, with the murder of the President Kennedy. And uh, during the, the lunch break, he had the Kodak Labs in uh, New Orleans, this would be, because he was the district attorney for New Orleans and the trial was there. He took the copy to the Kodak Labs and got copies made and then brought it back, did that all during the lunch hour break, the court break, and that's how he got the copy. Originally, eventually the copy that was that subpoenaed went back to Time Life. So he was left with a couple of copies. Was Garrison breaking the law by making copies? Definitely, definitely. He broke the law the minute he took the tape out of the court to the Kodak Labs. Yeah, he broke the law. So, but, so um, his intention was from the beginning, get a copy of the film, make copies, and try and distribute it to researchers around North America. Yeah, I mean, by the time he got to court, he realized that, remember, for the, he had approximately five different witnesses to the, uh, that he had subpoenaed, and um, all five never made it to court. With three of them, the first time in the history of the United States, a subpoena from a, a, one, a district attorney from one state was turned down by the governor of another state, namely California. Reagan struck down his subpoena. One of them was Arcacha Smith, and another, 
I think it was Gordon novel. I don't remember the third one, but it may not have been a novel, but it was Arcatia Smith and some other guys. And three of the guys were living in California and Reagan struck it down. So and then, then Jim Hink wound up in a mental asylum and uh, all he couldn't get all his any of his real main witnesses. Of course, um, David Ferry was murdered, suicided. So he realized that things were going against him. And um, by the time if he had an opportunity to make a copy, the case, the Zapruder film was so important because it was a smoking gun, which completely destroyed the government's case. And that's what the, the beauty of the Zapruder film is it's a blatant smoking gun. Shows right. a man shot from the front, and yet the government's case is all about Oswald, and he was never in front of Kennedy. The film, then, how was Garrison? Did he? Well, he did play the film before to the jurors, correct? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, he showed it in the courtroom. And then he had to return it to Time Warner, but in the meantime, he made copies. Penn Jones, right. Penn Jones trusted you. So your mission was, again, to, to, to bring it to Canada and get right. it aired on a border station, and that was significant. Why? Why a border station? My plan was I had a lot of connections through May Brussels and the whole JFK uh, Lancer, that whole convention network. I had students who could turn on, get into the library and turn on their, mach their tape machines at the universities. It was all done through the universities. My contact were, I was at University of Toronto and we used to give lectures and guys from the States would come up and through word of health and talking, we made contacts with people at in Rochester and Syracuse and Detroit and Buffalo and everywhere somebody could get could receive the broadcast from CBLT with its tower on Jarvis Street. You could get that in Syracuse and Rochester and Buffalo. You could pick up that channel and turn on the your remember nobody had these big two and a half inch or two inch tape reel to reel. They were they were in libraries. So everybody made plans. They worked at it and it took us many months so that everybody got a way to get access to the library machines at night. And once that was set up, then I coordinated that with five guys mostly. And those five guys, they passed, had other people. And I didn't, um, I wasn't in, I didn't have time to figure out and ask them who are their people. I just trusted them that they would make, a, put together a chain of universities along the border that could get the signal and get people to make copies. So you take the Zapruder film in, can you tell us the border station? Which one it was? Yeah, it was one was CBLT and the other one was the Windsor station. CBC Windsor. I can't remember. The the main one was CBLT. In Toronto. Toronto 6. Yeah. Okay, so, so a copy is taken to Windsor and CBC in Toronto. And right. you had made connections and their videotape. I had a connection with the senior executive in the Canadian, in the CBC in Toronto. So after him, we go up the ladder he reported to a guy in Ottawa. So he was the highest ranking executive in C in Toronto for the CBC. So you said, I've got this a copy of the Zapruder film. He can't just air it during the normal broadcast day. Otherwise, he would be in possession. No, of, no, no, so, no. No, so no how, it was done at two in the morning. The color bars went down and they broadcasted it three or four times. He broadcast, just started a plane at two in the morning and let it run for approximately two minutes and then shut it down. 
and put the color bars back down. And, you know, I was at the University of Toronto making a copy. I was at the U of T right. at the St. Mike's, St. Mike's Laboratory at a machine tuned into CBLT and make a copy onto the tape there. The idea here is this is after the broadcast day is finished, the test pattern goes up, but they brought it down right. just for a couple of minutes. Right. They play the uh, Zapruder film, mainly for the benefit of those who have been alerted ahead of time at university libraries to push record on their giant videotape machines yeah. so that yeah. this is how it got disseminated. And had you been caught smuggling that film out of the United States, what would have happened to you? 70 years in jail. 70. It would be a 70 years is what is what Garrison told me. He said, you know, if you're caught, you could get 70 years in jail. The judge could throw the book at you. And what about for the executive at the CBC who gave the green light to air it? Remember, um, first of all, you got to remember the chronology here. First of all, 1971, I meet Ben Jones. By the time I get a copy of it and ready to go, it was at least a year. It may have been a, a little bit more than a year, but it was approximately a year to a year and a half. It was only once. Now, the danger happened when I flew down to, and I flew down to Dallas to get it from Ben Jones. I didn't get it from Garrison. He had to have a, a buffer between he and I because it was illegal for him to. He got it to Penn. I don't know how he got it to Penn. That was their business. The less I knew, the better. And then Penn met me at the airport in Dallas. I took the film and got back on the plane. I didn't even stay at the gate. Like, I, you know, in those years, you could go to the gate. Penn could drive. I like, come right to, you know, where the gate is. I got off the plane. I had a ticket to go back uh, and they were using the same plane. I had, I had found out in advance because I wanted to stay on the plane. I only got out to get the film from Ben and then I went back into the plane. Right. And I just was, that was the dangerous part. And then uh, fortunately, you know, I mean, I was just sitting there in the plane thinking, oh, please, let's go. Let's take off and let me get out of here. And it went smoothly. I was overly cautious and probably overly paranoid, too, and uh, got to Canada and uh, back to Toronto and just came through customs. I didn't have anything to declare. I mean, it was only a, you know, this Zapruder film is on a, on a little, eight, it's, it's, a, it's an eight millimeter tape. Right. Like it goes in the palm of your hand. 486 frames. It's 26 seconds. And you know, there, there's a, there's no metal detector in those years. I was going to ask so, you, how did you prevent it, the film from getting, uh, f well, not fogged. It's already been developed, so it's not going to fog because of the x-ray machine. No. But And there is no x-ray machine. It's 1972. Right. Those were different years, you know. And I mean, you didn't have a cell phone. You didn't. Uh, <laughs> you didn't have a camera. Well, I had a Pentax camera, but the last thing I wanted to do was take pictures. But anyway, I got back into Canada, and then once I was in Canada, then I approached the CBC. Not until not until then. Right. And how long did it take you to negotiate? I mean, what was the first response? I can't play this. This is too hot to handle. This is radioactive. Yeah, the first response was, oh, I really hope I can do this. I got to figure out a way to do it. And he went away for a couple of weeks and came back. And he realized he figured out this is how he was going to do it. And he said that um, he'd find out when the shift changed and the cleaning staff came in because his plan was that if someone was to come to him, he'd say his, his answer was the cleaning lady flipped, was dusting the board. 
flipped the switch by mistake. It was just an accident. It was only done for a couple of seconds. She corrected it right away. And that would have been the his that was his, his alibi. Plausible deniability. Yeah, and of course, nothing ever did happen. I don't know if anybody was on uh, at that time. I don't know about the loggers. I once asked him, what about the loggers? Will it be on the logger? He said, don't worry, I've looked after that. I mean, so he looked after it, and I, I never had, had, he never had a problem, or I didn't have a problem ever. Saw him now and then over the years. He was a good friend of my aunt's. I once spent a, sometime in the 80s, I once spent a New Year's Eve with him. Anyway, they were anxious. These guys were interested in getting it aired as well. And so how many how many universities actually made copies? Well, to the best of my knowledge, I remember the five guys who I spoke to, and one of the five said he had another guy in, in another university town that could get the signal. I guess it was six, and but it, but it could have been more because, you know, everybody were reaching, they, they were reaching out to all their friends saying, look, everybody, get to your university campus, get to the university library, two in the morning, get there, channel CBC, channel six, get your, get, get the machines ready, and I don't know in the end, how many? Because the last thing I wanted to do was make contact with them afterwards. Right. I only spoke to the one main guy because I didn't want there to be any phone records or anything, you know what right. I mean? You didn't want it coming back to you. And so did they yeah. in turn also then make copies and distribute it in other ways? Listen, I'm sure they could have. You know what? I didn't keep. I only kept in touch with that one guy, and we would see each other regularly at the JFK Lancer conventions in Dallas. So once in one year, I'd see him, and I wouldn't see him for maybe four or five years, and I'd see him. And every time we'd see each other, we'd sort of catch up, and we sort of think back about the days of how heady they were. Because years later, this, the supporter film was was made public. Right, Geraldo Rivera aired it on a television show, a major U.S. network. When was that? Nineteen seventy-five. Something like that. He aired it in about 75. Maybe he aired it because it was a little thing that I did by getting it out. I certainly got it out before him. Yes, you did. It was 1973 by the time we did it. 73. I'm wondering if, if anyone actually saw it who was not intended to see it. Maybe they were up late. They were watching their TV. You know, maybe they fell asleep in front of the TV. They wake up, the test pattern comes down, and all of a sudden they see the Zapruder film. Did you ever hear from anyone who saw it by accident? I never heard of it, no. I never heard anything about it. The CBC never got any complaints to the best of my knowledge. More of my conversation with JFK assassination researcher Nelson Thal when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. 
I can't stop talking about the pomegranate super tea from my friends at Get The Tea. They actually changed the name. It used to be known as Formula 13 pomegranate cleansing tea, but this gentle cleansing tea now contains a new stronger formula. All I know is it still tastes great, it's still refreshing, and it still provides me with energy and a sense of well-being. This new blend of tea contains some of the same ingredients as those that are in the Life Change teas, but with added natural pomegranate flavor and stevia to give it a natural, slightly sweetened taste. One pouch of tea contains eight tea bags, enough to last for one month. I brew two gallons at a time and then it steeps in cold water. Into the fridge it goes and that's enough to last for the week. I start my day every day with a 16 ounce cool refreshing glass of this amazing herbal non-GMO caffeine-free tea. It provides a daily gentle cleanse that rids my body of any intruders. A healthy gut is the key to a healthy body. So come on board and find out for yourself. The super tea also comes in peppermint. These teas are not available in any store. Use the code UNLIMITED and all your orders ship for free. Get your tea from getthetea.com. If there's one thing money can't buy, it's sanity. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Nelson Thal is here and we're talking about the Zapruder film and the JFK assassination. The Zapruder film that was handed off to you by Penn Jones at Love Field in Dallas in 1970 or 71, the film that was passed off to you and that, yeah. that Garrison had and made copies of, do we know whether right. that was altered in any way before Garrison got it? Well, yes, Garrison, the final, first of all, the copy that was given to the, the Warren Commission was a very, very scratchy copy, and uh, they claim that it had frames missing, especially the frames around the uh, the Stemmons Freeway sign was, uh, years later, a guy named Robert Groden came out with a really terrific copy years later the Kodak specialist, film specialist, and he came out with a, a copy. But um, it was it was certainly the copy that was given to the Warren Commission. They made it look as bad as they could, scratchy as possible. But the copy that Garrison had, was that pretty much... It was, oh yeah, it, was, it wasn't the best copy. It wasn't like Groden's copy, but still it was enough that you could see it well. There was no doubt you could see Kennedy being shot from the front. But was it altered because there's some speculation that frames were flipped or cut out? I mean, did Garrison's copy have any alterations? Let me just say this. If you were the CIA and you wanted to alter this film, you have done def you would alter it so that it would agree with the government's story. Not detract. Exactly. Right. So whatever they did, they didn't do anything to help their cause. If anything, they put out a copy of a man shot from the front. Now, remember, in the actual summary and conclusion volume, they did in that all in the where they showed it frame by frame. They switched frame 312 with 313. So you can see Mary Mormon walking towards the the car and then back up a step because they flipped the they flipped those and they got caught at it. Now, that is they did because that way. If you were looking at it very carefully with an eyeglass, you'd say, oh, his head went forward. 
but they flipped 312 and 313. But more than that, it's frame 231 that is the damaging frame, because in that frame, you have a picture of Conley with his hand on his right hand holding his Stetson hat, and yet Kennedy's clutching his throat. Now, that means the bullet has already passed through Kennedy's neck. The Warren Commission said that's the same bullet that smashed Connolly's right wrist. But in frame 231, his wrist is visible holding his Stetson hat. It's not where it was down by his thigh when he turned around. Right. That's the magic bullet that miraculously ended up on Connolly's stretcher at at Parkland uh, in pristine condition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, put there by Jack Ruby's nephew. I can't remember his name right now. Who was the intern? I mean, the whole thing is a joke. So let me ask you about Abraham Zapruder, this Ukrainian-born American clothing manufacturer who right. would later say that he, he didn't want to go, he, had, he didn't intend on taking his camera. You know what, what a number of people have pointed out to me that I never even thought of? Here is a guy who's holding a camera, pointed at the presidential limousine, all of a sudden shots are ringing out, there's bedlam everywhere, he doesn't duck, the camera's not shaky, it's rock solid. How do you account for that? Well, Penn Jones always said that Zapruder was sent there purposely. And in your research, have you ever been able to link Zapruder to any of the characters involved in the assassination? You know, the way these assassinations are done is a guy who's sent to Dewey Plaza to shoot the film, he's not necessarily told that Kennedy's going to get shot. He's told, hey, we're going to have a big event. You know what? Like a number of the shooters were told that uh, you're just to shoot over his head. We're just wanting to warn the president. So who knows what Zapruder was said. But, you know, when they plan these military operations, there may be five shooters, but none of the five shooters have met. They've all been training in different locations in the country. They're all coming together at the same spot, same time, but none of them know that the other guy, what he's to do, he's to, they're a shooter, there's a man with them with a walkie-talkie, and they're told when to shoot, period. So everything's cellularized, so no one person knows that can see the big operation. As you point out, the Zapruder film actually is the smoking gun. It proves that Kennedy was shot from in from front the and, in, and the side. Right. Why then? You know, they have this, we have this big JFK death list. We have these cleaning uh, teams that come in and, and clean up all the evidence. They sanitize the, the vehicle. Why would they allow the Zapruder film to exist if it doesn't help their case? First of all, I don't think there's such a thing as the perfect crime. Well, in the in the midst of, of evil and wickedness, people make mistakes. There's incompetence. And um, they sealed away the film and they expected it to be sealed away. They, I guess they, the last they, I'm sure they fought against it being released to Garrison at the time and lost out. But remember, they, they made sure that Garrison's witnesses were all either eliminated or, or uh, the, the subpoena struck down. So there was a big effort to stop the truth from getting out, as we know. And this was one of the efforts and a lot of pressure was brought against Garrison. Of course, the movie JFK by Oliver Stone is a tremendous documentary about what really went on behind the scenes. I just want to ask you about one one figure that we see in the Zapruder film. He's called the Umbrella Man. He's been identified as Louis Stephen Witt. We see this figure in the Zapruder film with an umbrella. At one point it's open and then it's closed. 
Who is or was Louis Stephen Witt and what was his role? Well, I, Penn Jones always felt that whoever would come out as the umbrella man would be a double. It would be somebody who looks like him, but the real guys are never left alive because they, they, they can't afford to have them left alive. I mean, that was why J- David Ferry made his nighttime a trip to Houston. He was in a plane and he was supposedly flew the shooters out and they probably threw them out into the Gulf of Mexico. They, they got rid of all these people right away. So whoever came out as the umbrella man, uh, nobody really honestly believed that, that it really was the umbrella man. They never leave somebody in that position alive. If he was involved, what was his role oh, supposed to be? All his role was simple. Uh, you got shooters on the ground You've got a second assassination team on the other side of the Stemmons Freeway. Uh, that means a whole new story. If the lone assassin doesn't work, he, if he, they miss there, they can't leave Kennedy alive. So they had, they had a commando team of Cubans that would have assaulted him and blown up. And they had to have him on the street very close to where the gun shots were first fired to make the decision as to whether the second assassination team has to go into go to work that day and it, of course that's why the shooting started right at the point where the umbrella man was standing so he could make that assessment and um they, the second assassination team which there was a lot of documentation about but they never talk about it i don't even think stone put it in in the movie but there was a group of school teachers on a bridge uh, right after the Stemmons Freeway, teacher came and the teacher filled out an affidavit saying she saw men with men with rifles under the bridge where she was standing, and she was. So it was a second assassination team, is what it was that uh, Garrison figured. So the umbrella man was there to signal the second team if they were needed. Right. Someone had to decide, is this guy, were, were we successful? Is he dead? Is he Or is he alive? Because if they miss him, then we've got to go with a whole new story. We can't do the, if they had missed, then we would have been, we never would have heard of De- Lee Harvey Oswald. And it would have been blamed on a group of Cuban uh, revolutionaries who were angry at Kennedy for, for the Bay of Pigs invasion. Fascinating. Trying to kill Castro. It's a Castro team. Remember, the whole purpose of the assassination was really to get an excuse, not just, first of all, the assassination of Kennedy was an attack on the executive branch of government. They wanted to remove and destroy the United States by taking out the executive branch. And Kennedy just happened to be the holder of that office at the time that we realized this was everything in place. This is the time to act if you're going to take out. And that's why the book by Mark Lane and, and uh, is called Executive Action, because this was the, the purpose was to take out the executive branch. And might I say they were successful, the Nazi connection to the JFK assassination. The Nazis were tremendously involved, Walter Dornberger and the other Nazis. And they did take over the White House. And the battle we have now with Trump is Trump's one of the patriots fighting against trying to get these Nazi collaborators out of the country. We can do an entire show, and I think we have. We'll do. We'll revisit that topic: the Nazi connection to the JFK assassination and the rise of the Fourth Reich. To borrow a title from Jim Mars, the late Jim Mars. But you did a TV show on it. People should go and see that show at Film One on YouTube. That's right. That's right. The Conspiracy Show television program. It is available on YouTube, 
and it is uh, the rise of the Fourth Reich. You were in that episode as well, Nels. In finishing up, though, on the Zapruder film, you mentioned that when it aired on CBC, you rushed over to the University of Toronto, St. Mike's, into the library so that you could make a copy. Do you still have that copy? Well, the copy's on reel-to-reel tape, I do, but I I don't have a reel-to-reel machine anymore. I I don't have a reel-to-reel anymore with the, but I've got it, we've all got it off the internet. We've made copies. I mean, years ago, I made copies once it was on the internet. Um, I do have a tape. Do you remember I put it on two and a half inch reel to reel tape for those big woolen sack machines? Yes. I don't know if you remember back yes. in the 70s. So I had it on that. I never did transfer it off of that, but I still do have it on that. But it, it's sort of obsolete now that it's available and the Groen film came out. I suppose, cetera, cetera. but it's, it's still a fascinating chapter in history, Nelson, in which you played a very active role. As you said, you could have yeah. you could have been put away for 70 years had you been caught and uh, thanks to you that the that Zapruder film was distributed and disseminated to many researchers around the world before Geraldo Rivera aired it on network television. Great story Nelson yeah. thank you so much. Thanks again and uh, thanks very much for everything Richard. Keep up the great work. Bye bye. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a flash to tell you a little bit about an upcoming episode. Hey there, I'm hard at work on another edition of Inner Sanctum, my free monthly newsletter. Inner Sanctum features my monthly brief, a column of my thoughts and opinions on what's happening in the world. It features a spotlight on a past guest, a look ahead to an upcoming episode of my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show. It features a look at this month in conspiracy and UFO history and my Conspiracy Unlimited podcast episode pick of the month and so much more. To get your free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, delivered to your email inbox, just go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. Scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on Inner Sanctum and register. It's fast, easy, and again, absolutely free. Coming up next time, Michael Bodine describes his life growing up psychic. I'm a big denial guy. I love denial. And I, I tried to ignore all the things that were happening for years. But I, after a while, you can't keep ignoring it. When I was a little kid, when I was like five, there was an ambulance that went by our house. And I knew my mother and my sister were in that ambulance. I just knew it. I could see colors around people there, my whole life. And I just thought everybody could see colors. But I kept trying my best to, de- to deny it. But finally, I just got to the point where, and I remember trying to tell it to my family or trying to explain it to them, like, does this happen to you where you, where you meet somebody and you just know that they're about to, this is about to happen or that's about to happen? And th- they didn't have that same thing. And so I just slowly just said, okay, screw it. What? What about this stuff? What am, why do I have this and what am I going to do with it? Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... 
we need constant petting. <laughs> 